0: Hello, Blazers. Welcome to episode 29 of UAB Green and Told, original air date Monday, September 28, 2020. Through this podcast, we sit down with members of the UAB family to share their stories. I'm Greg Berry, Assistant Director in the UAB Office of Alumni Affairs. On this episode, we are joined by Dr. Reed Montague, a research professor at Virginia Tech University. As Dr. Montague reveals, his life was full of twists and turns. That includes pivoting from planning to be a physician in the early stages of his UAB experience.
1: And I immediately knew medical school wasn't for me. The only part I enjoyed was talking to patients.
0: Now, as Hill explained, he takes a look at why we make the decisions we do, no matter the avenue, including politics.
1: So if we can predict that they're going to be conservative or liberal based on their covert brain responses, what are they consciously
0: saying? Plus, Dr. Montague will delve into research of a sort of neurolaw, law, blending law, with science.
1: You can't ask these questions as just mere science or mere law. They live somewhere in between.
0: Most research will likely not go viral. But don't tell Reed Montague that. Over the years, Dr. Montague has done some pretty cool things with his research as a biophysicist but it took him a long time to find his place and hit his stride. Before he had any consistency in his life, he bounced around everywhere.
1: Atlanta, Macon, I went to boarding school in South Florida between about 14 and 16. I went to, I graduated from a school, a high school, and I went to 10 schools between the first and 12th grade. No kidding. I suspect I was difficult in school and they moved me around all the time. I went to First Presbyterian Day School in 1970 as a 10 year old, and you're just not as aware of things as you should be. That was the year that they desegregated schools in Macon. And I was put in this church school and basically made to build the school. I mean, it was one class per grade. And I had to take mathematics with the uh, eighth graders and I was in the fifth grade and I was already a small fit. So, So I think I was a troublesome child to place and then went to Georgia Tech as a freshman come from a long line of Georgia Tech engineers.
0: Okay. So, so you kind of knew you were going to go into engineering from a young age.
1: No, when I went to Georgia Tech, I had three first cousins at Georgia Tech. My dad and his brother went to Georgia Tech and my grandfather and his three brothers went to Georgia Tech. Wow. Okay. I had an uncle that founded the school, what became the school, the material science department and blah, blah, blah. Okay. So I was certain after Thanksgivings and Christmases with these people that I would never go into engineering. I'd never met a more boring group of people, but there was a math gene in there somewhere, that was for sure. Long story short, I went to Georgia Tech and uh, I did electrical engineering the first year and I I hated it. I hated being 20 minutes from home. I hated, I would really have liked the school if I was an out-of-state student, but I needed to get away from home. So I moved to Auburn. In the middle of the night at the end of my freshman year at Georgia Tech called my parents from Alabama and said oh by the way I've moved to Auburn I've given up my scholarships at Tech and um this is what I'm going to do and I'm going to switch out of engineering into uh, mathematics (laughs) they were so angry
0: so basically all the bouncing around you did in high school continued (laughs) in the first couple years
1: okay so then I'm in Alabama I've never been in Alabama before but I ran out of things to do really quickly at, at, at Auburn and so I, they quit making me take tests and I would take graduate courses in mathematics and they sort of tutored me and I worked for a quantum chemist and I started getting interested in the brain. I knew nothing about people that did research, nothing. I was a mathy kid who could program computers quickly and so I was very useful to people. I worked for a guy who was almost blind, he was a quantum chemist and um, his name was Robert Donnelly. and. He was a holy terror to the students. I loved him. Uh, he was really quick. And anyway, I computed things for him. So he had all these problems in physical chemistry and I would write computer programs. And, uh, but he couldn't see very well. And he would sit six inches from the screen and his eyes were moving all the time. He had what was called permanent vertical nystagmus. Nystagmus is if you stare out of the car when you're going down the highway and you watch your sister or brother's eyes, they beat, right? They track smoothly, and then your system says, "Us as far as you can go," and they snap back. It's a saccade. It's called optokinetic nystagmus. Well, his were beating vertically, and I watched him reading the screen, and I just thought, "How on earth is his brain reassembling my code?" He would read my code on the screen to me, and he would ask me what I was doing here. And I got very interested in the brain. I thought you needed to go to medical school. I applied to medical school like two weeks before most people's deadlines. I got into every, just about everywhere I applied. People said, well, you should go to UAB. UAB is actually a really pretty good medical school, and you, um... so I went to UAB, to medical school, and I immediately knew medical school wasn't for me. The only part I enjoyed was talking to patients, and I sought to leave, and the then Dean, Jim Pittman, who was a, I don't know, a visionary slash renegade, called me into his office and said, we, we wanna start an MD-PhD program. If you'll stay, we'll, we'll fund your education. So it was a completely unplanned trajectory, but I, I think science found me.
0: Growing up, you mentioned 10 different schools. Then you go to college, Georgia Tech, Auburn, UAB. At what point do you settle down?
1: I moved to Texas. I took a, a job as an assistant professor at Texas at Baylor College of Medicine and an a adjunct appointment at Rice in computer science. So my work has always lived between computer science and neurobiology. And they hired me to be a modeling person, which was, um, other than MIT and Caltech, there weren't places hiring people to do that then. This was 1993. And that's what I did for, uh, from uh, sort of 93 to near 2000. And then I started, um, I made models of other people's data. But you can't get people to do experiments that you want. And so, and neurobiology and cognitive neuroscience is still in this phase of reverse engineering the brain. And so you really do have to do experiments.
0: Why neurobiology? What, where does that fascination oh. come from?
1: Oh, well, that's easy. I mean, anybody who wakes up in the morning and stares at their hand or thinks about their own perceptions or wonders why they picked the key lime pie and not the chocolate cake or why am I interested in this partner and not that partner and what makes me tick? Why do, why do, I, see, why do I open my eyes and there's a world there? as a kid that's a mysterious set of propositions and as an adult you start going well how is it that the physical world implements a thing like that then it bubbles out into every domain where we build institutions that we believe in we build laws we build uh, the model penal code is a great example so uh, circa 1960 there's something called the model penal code and um, it's not accepted by every country in the world but it's accepted by every country that you and I could probably name and um, and that is, for all conditions of a crime, circumstances of a crime being equal, you can be differentially punished depending on the mental state you were in when you did it. Purposefully, knowingly, recklessly, or negligently. Okay. So, built into our punishment scheme, in the law, the sort of prefrontal cortex of society, the rule of law, we have ensconced in there the idea that there are these things called mental states And we are willing to differentially punish you based on them. Well, what kind of reality is there? A reality to that, or is that just some sort of bias in our nervous system? And so that's a fundamental question about how we comport ourselves as a society. That a large part of the answer will be understanding better how it is that the brain and its function generates. So for me, it was this sort of personalized thing early on. Let's say 25 years ago. But for now, um, it's a very hot subject because it's starting to creep into all these domains that other people care about that aren't neuroscientists, right? Neuroscience is starting to touch upon, I don't think rationally informed yet, but it's clear it's coming. Mental illness, uh, the law, educational institutions, um, treatments of various sorts. So anyway, that's why it's interesting to me.
0: At the very base form, some of that research is kind of channeling your inner kid because why? You're asking the question, why? So you wrote the book, Why Choose This Book? How We Make the Decisions in 2006. And and that's kind of marrying the uh, psychology and neuroscience of everything. And and just kind of phenomenal knowing that it's such a simplistic form.
1: The, The question, if it's any good, is simple. The answer to the question may be vastly complex. Uh, all good science is, in a sense, science rendered by a child. I mean, all good science is the ability to ask a very clear question. Even if the question is based on a misunderstanding, as long as it's clear, it starts to reveal things, right? And it opens up doors that we didn't even, we didn't even think about before. This thing that they teach kids in school is so backwards to the whole form your hypothesis, t- hypothesis, test, and theorem. That is not the way anybody that's any good does science at all. What they do is they look at the world and they make a guess. And they try to clarify their guess, right? And then all the methods and uh, control experiments and uh, defense against bias, etc. in doing scientific experiments, that's all the checking. That's all after the fact. But there's still this dark art of every good foray is a leap, it's a leap with a really clean question on it. So, so, so through my career, I've been around people who, were, who sought clarity that way, right? Really, really pushed on that. And that's different than kind of the school book version of how science gets done. It's just, it's, um, it's much more higgledy-piggledy than people realize and much more of a, a guessing game than people realize. And, 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 and any conclusion is always piled on with a lot of uncertainty. Um, And we've done a bad job, we scientists have done a bad job doing two things with the public, keeping them interested and excited about it while realizing that any answer you get is provisional, probabilistic, part wrong, maybe misleading in good ways, et cetera. And that's just the way, that's the way it goes.
0: About a year ago or so, there was an article that cited you in the Atlantic and it just went viral. It was non-political images evoke neural predictors of political ideology. Right. What started that and talk a little bit about what you found.
1: <laughs> okay, here's what started it. I had a friend and he would come over, he's an extremely fun, I start talking about John, I started laughing. Uh, we would just have coffee and laugh. He was a political scientist who, uh, one of his specialties was looking at the impact of gerrymandering political districts on actually election outcomes. and um he's a realist but he started getting interested in the the bio is there any biological basis to political ideology he comes to my lab one day and goes we've done this thing and blah 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 and we think political ideology has a heritability index of 0.48 okay just to give you 0.48 like almost a half okay height is about 0.51 so if you have tall parents you tend to be tall for the obvious reasons. There are about 180, 200 genes that we've identified associated with height because there are lots of ways to be tall, okay? Um, but if you have tall parents, you know, you're like your parents. Now, his claim was, if you have conservative parents, a lot of the impulsive attitudes that you would have are heritable. And I was just like, that is I mean, I just laughed him out of the room. Okay, so he comes back. He's a very persistent guy. He comes back. He says, I understand why you're behaving. You're reacting that way. I said, it's like an accent. There's a reason when you grow up in Macon, Georgia, that you sound like people from Macon, Georgia. There's a reason when you grow up in Sussex, you sound like people from Sussex. Eventually, they show me the data. Now, all of this is predicated on, do you buy this political ideology assay as a, as a, uh, a reporting instrument? But let's just suppose you sort of bought it. The numbers were overwhelming, really. Anyway, I agreed to do the experiment. And the experiment was based on some other work that they had done to use emotionally evocative stimuli from positive, negative, neutral categories, including threatening stimuli. Okay, and the kinds of threat for the stimuli we're talking about are threats from contamination and pictures and threats from like physical attacks, you know, like somebody standing there with a knife or um, or a, a dog, you know, about to attack you or attack somebody else. And then the, the contamination pictures would be things like somebody eating worms or um, a fly on a salad or a, poopy, a picture of poop in a toilet. I mean, gross stuff. Okay, so the idea was simple. Bring people in, sign them up for an experiment where you're doing a visual... You put them in a scanner, you just show them pictures. Please stare at the pictures. You control for are they looking at the pic, you do all the sort of professional imaging person's stuff. You see positive, negative, neutral images. And then later you get out of the scanner and then we ask you after that, would you like to sign up for this other experiment? And you take this little online political ideology essay, which includes things like a slider bar that you set for agree to disagree to uncertain on like, words and word pairs. So it'd be like, um, trigger issues, uh, gun control. That's what it would say. Okay. So you set the slider bar, big government, abortion, premarital sex, it, you know, trigger issues for people. Right. And I mean, uh, and so in a sense, the experiments are separate. We just said, do the brain responses to pictures of stuff that have nothing to do with politics. Generate, can you generate a mathematical mapping from those brain responses to your score on this test? The postdoc, he comes running down the hall and goes, this is a technical technoclinor. We we're 100% out of sample, which means we train a model on the pictures shown, uh, some of them, to map onto the test scores, and then we test that model on held out data. So we have some data that we've held out. We said, we're going to take our model now and see if I can look at your brain response and predict what you're going to make on that test and we were like something very close to 100% out of sample. So he was very happy about it. I remember this like it was yesterday. I went, there is no way on God's green earth that I'm publishing a paper saying I'm 100% out of sample. We're gonna, so I started making it harder and harder and harder until I got it down to, I don't know, 98. Uh, Now you can quibble over the outcome, but I'm telling you, we did, I mean, we reduced the number of people down to I think 130. That's a massive functional imaging experiment. We sent it to a journal called Current Biology, which is for kitschy, on-the-edge findings. But it was, um, it was remarkable how you could predict their score on the test. The other thing that was remarkable was this. We went back in and asked, what do they consciously think about these pictures? In other words, if we can predict that they're gonna be conservative or liberal based on their covert brain responses, what do they consciously say? Doesn't differentiate it at all. So when you get them to rate the pictures, Consciously rate these pictures on some axis like how scary is this or how, you know, okay There's no difference at all between the people that your brain response says that the the, the political ideology as they say are conservative versus Liberal, so there's no it's not conscious. It was unconscious Um, But let's let me so let's do it as a fairy tale so imagine a long time ago when people were just starting to coalesce into villages and hunter gatherer bands weren't always just bands they sometimes stopped there are a couple of biological imperatives that keep you alive one is if somebody's coming at you with a knife or a weapon you know be threatened run do whatever it is to defend yourself the second is contamination cultures that decide to put the abattoir next to the latrine that's a bad idea and the reason it's a super bad idea because unlike threat which or unlike poisoning which kind of goes as the scale like if you eat a poison grass your your degree of poisonedness scales as the amount you eat whereas all you got to have is one little bacteria right so disgust as you well know is transitive if I take my finger and I dip it in poop and then you watch me clean my finger with alcohol and Clorox and all this kind of stuff and then I touch something else like a spoon would you put that spoon in your mouth? And the answer is, no way. you. No, would. not at all. If I got a, an aluminum brushed uh, bedpan right off the assembly line and you watched it come off, it's stainless steel, nothing's touched it, and I just rinsed it out, the mere association of what it will be for, but hasn't been used yet. If I pour Coca-Cola in there, you're not going to drink the Coca-Cola. Mm. So... What I'm saying is those instincts are built in at many levels of cognitive representation because they protect you from contaminating yourself, right? And so it's not altogether insane that some collection of instinctual responses to defend against contamination all but, But um, yeah, that went a bit viral.
0: You've also done research on predicting the knowledge, recklessness, dis- distinction in the human brain. And it's called kind of a, a neuro law. It was a study that looked at participants, whether or not they'd carry a suitcase through a checkpoint using a scanning machine. Yep. And that is something where some people were kind of hesitant and others weren't. What did you find with that research?
1: Uh, that was part of the MacArthur-funded network on neuroscience and law that I was a part of for um, a decade, over a decade, actually. Okay. And that was the so-called risky mental states project. It's also an area now where neuroscience will have something to say about thinking about how we uh, contrive these laws and how we render them. It won't have, I don't see any time in the near future it having anything to do with in courtroom stuff, but it, it may well, for legal scholars, have a lot to feed them outside of the courtroom thinking about what these mental states are so one of the claims about these mental states per- doing something purposefully knowingly recklessly or negligently and distinguishing those mental states based on behavioral data There, there's an instinct in people that i have something like the way did i do that recklessly or so recklessly means you know the risks involved and you take them anyway Negligent is you didn't know something and something tragic happens. So it's a really important question. The, the design of that experiment um, was sort of a collective design of the committee, of the legal scholars and the neuroscientists at the time. So there was this long struggle for us to kind of calibrate to one another. Lawyers think about the brain in a kind of conscious deliberative way. Like most of your brain is conscious and deliberative and people like me kind of smile when people say that not that we think it's not there. It's just that we think that 99.9% of it already done by covert processes and we don't know what kind of control you have over it. And so that's a little bit of a gap. That's an interesting gap. So we did this experiment and um, and then we use machine learning methods. It's the same one as a political ideology. We put you in different states and we ask, can we decode whether or not you're in a state of knowing versus reckless, you know, because we um, could parameterize the degree which you could know it. You know there's a 10% probability you're carrying contraband versus there's an 80% probability you're carrying contraband across the border. Okay. To be fair to the paper, it's it's literally that, The it was the first such paper. We could make that distinction. Um, it doesn't mean that that's the right distinction to make for the society. It means that given that this is a representative distinction of the KR boundary, of the knowledge, recklessness, boundary, you can find information in your brain that would decode to that. Now it may be that there are other ways to think about knowledge and recklessness at the top end, in terms of law, in terms of how we think about punishment, that are different than that, and then you you could ask the question again by asking can your brain, does your brain decode on those axes in some effective way? I think the point of it is you can't ask these questions as just mere science or mere law. They live somewhere in between. The choice of how you define the variables and what you seek to measure builds in um, your biases about what you think you may find or not find or what you can see or can't see given the algorithms at the time. And so it's a growth industry in that sense. You can imagine the misuse of it. You can imagine the misuse of it. But I think in some sense, it's an antidote to the misuse of court systems in general, and so I think it's okay to have pieces of science that weigh in. I mean, look at DNA mm-hmm. fingerprinting, and how many people that technology has released from prison. I just want to be careful here. What was clear to me after 10 years on that network was that you need different kinds of minds in the same room figuring this out. This doesn't live, there's not the sage that can decide the best way to do this. This is a this is a kind of... Uh, tension between who we want to be, the rules we make to express that, and then the special cases that slip by or our biases that slip in. And, and, it, and it is something that requires constant revision, like the law. I mean, the law requires constant revision.
0: What is next for Dr. Montague?
1: Ah, well, I have, uh, my group has over the last eight years invented new ways of recording neurotransmitter molecules at screamingly fast rates in the brains of humans during neurosurgery. These would be people being monitored with depth electrodes for uh, epilepsy or people that are having deep brain stimulating electrodes put in for either uh, for Parkinson's disease or essential tremors or dystonias or in some cases depression. And we've discovered a way to do fast chemistry on these wires. For the first time, we're getting low-level neurobiology in humans, that neurochemistry at least, that we haven't had. Before And then the second new avenue is, again, a new technology, which is um, it's now possible to make uh, fast, non-invasive recordings from the human brain using um, what's called room temperature magnetoencephalography. You put atomic clocks on people's heads. And these atomic clocks can make sensitive measurements of the fluctuations in neural activity and the magnetic field changes that go on. It's going to open up. The possibility of doing things like that in children, for example. So you put a little headdress on a kid, and, uh, and it doesn't have the problems of older technologies. And so we've built a new facility here for that. And to, so, in a sense, we're heading back toward the neurobiology of it. We're really heading down to sort of nuts and bolts neurobiology to try to connect it to these more interesting questions in cognitive science.
0: And that's Dr. Reed Montague. In 1988, Dr. Montague earned his PhD in biophysics from the UAB College of Arts and Sciences. As someone who has a unique look at life, he has a unique idea of what it means to be a blazer.
1: It was kind of a no boundaries place for me. It wasn't wasn't like, oh, I'm a person who does this thing. It's this is the problem I'm working on. So if I were to characterize it, it's this kind of, it, it characterizes the modern age which isn't organized around uh, traditional uh, college disciplines. and what It organizes around problems. And it recognizes the fact that things are moving fast. You can't sit around and ossify, you know? And it also recognizes the fact that it's a group endeavor. And so it was a pretty good place for that. I never found any pushback on doing new stuff. That's what it means to be a Blazer, having no boundaries.
0: You can listen in on previous episodes of our podcast at alumni.uab.edu slash greenandtold. Also, be sure to subscribe so you can be the first to know when new episodes are released. Download on iTunes, Spotify, and Stitcher. Know someone who would make a great guest? Email me at greenandtold at uab.edu. And don't forget to check us out on social media. All Things Alumni can be found at UAB Alumni on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Thanks for listening, and until next time, Go Blazers!